no, you know, she probably isn't prepared and it'd be hard to get dressed that fast. But I felt remiss. Then I start driving out here and halfway out, there's a rainstorm. And so I, I decided it was just as well. But uh, it's very strange. Oh, hello. You brought me a latte. Of course I did. Oh, you're so good. <laughs> you're so good. All right, let me organize myself. I picked up my newspaper on the way out. So weird. beloved corned beef and cabbage for three days and of course my blood pressure was way up and they wanted to put me on this med I started doing research for blood pressure mm -hmm. but I don't want to go on in I'm curious because have you been on blood pressure medication so there comes a time when everybody more or less what what medicine does they prescribe but I've also heard meditation
Well, I guess it's 10 o'clock, so we'll start. Somehow, you know, we changed the time, so now we're starting at 10. We're kind of used to that, but it seems much lighter. It's also summer coming on, and we moved the clocks. Um, the light looks different in here. But I'm glad to be back. You, I, you, if you were here last week, you know that I wasn't here last week, and I was meant to be, because my flight was canceled out of New York because of the blizzard that happened there. And it, it, was, it was an interesting thing to be in a blizzard and uh, to watch New York respond to it and get ready for it and uh, to watch myself think about, oh, comes a blizzard. and it, it was actually not as tremendous as they thought, but there was a lot of snow around and a lot of traffic got stalled. And the height of the blizzard was at noon on Tuesday, which was just when my plane was scheduled to take off. So I was extremely happy to be sitting in my hotel room at that point and not be sitting in a plane that was deciding to take off. And I was very glad that um, Tony could come on such a short notice. I'm pretty sure he was great. Was he great? Do you know Tony, Heidi? Do you all know Tony? Uh, you all know Heidi. Who knows Heidi? Who knows Heidi? Heidi teaches for me sometime when I'm. It was the day before I called Tony. Tony. <laughs> Tony lives much closer. Tony lives in um, um, Davis, so he came to teach. But I had a good time this month because we were together a whole month. And so I, I really want to finish talking today about all the things that we've been talking about this month. And then we'll go back and Donald will be here and I'll be here and Donald will be here and I'll be here. Who hasn't been here ever before on a Wednesday morning? What's your name? My name's Kate. Kate, hello. Where do you live, Kate? Why did you come today? Your friend Oh, good. Oh, good. Thank you for that. I hope you enjoy yourself and come again. Who else hasn't been here ever before? Hello. What's your name? Katie. Where do you live? Okay, and you just decided to come this morning? Or? That's great. That's great. Welcome. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here. We've been here for, well, we haven't been here for 25 years, but we've been hanging on Wednesdays for over 20 years. Officially, Joe knows how long, but I don't... That's since 1992. 1992. That's 25 years. And Joe's been there, most of it, with me, yeah, from the beginning. Are you still collecting for the... Once a month. Once a month when you come in, there's a basket there for the homeless shelter, and uh, Spirit Rock provides, this class provides a meal one day a month for the men in the homeless shelter. 
and women. Oh, okay. So it's not just that, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for doing it. And you're the same intermediary all these years? I re-brought back with me that um, the the piece I read out of the New York Times a few weeks ago, because I can't bring myself to give it away, uh, about the editorial quoting Pope Francis. Did you all see that editorial quoting Pope Francis where he says what you should do if somebody asks you for money in a street, especially if you live in a city where there's a lot of homelessness or... Uh, a lot of people uh, who seem to have a disability and aren't able to take care of themselves. And he had a very... They, they, they talk about his, um, his teaching about it in an Italian magazine at some length, but the gist of it is uh, the Pope offered a concrete, permanently useful prescription for dealing with people who are asking for something. It's this. Give them the money and don't worry about it. And then he goes on about it. Uh, uh, that, uh, and he says, you have to do it and also be looking at them at that time. And at the, uh, in the article, he says, you really have to look at them and touch them when, they, when you give them something. Is to preserve their dignity and to see other people not as pathology or a social condition, but as a human with a life whose equal value is equal to your own. That's an amazing... That's an amazing expression of the Dharma. The Buddha would not have said it differently. Any sage would not have said it differently. We get born into the life that we're born in for such myriad reasons, you know, that uh, uh, everybody's where they are doing what they are because it can't be different. Then they'd be somewhere else doing something else if it could be different. But everybody's got a life. And... Uh, it's, it's, uh, I think that the, 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 the way that translates into myself, into how I feel, is not that I should do this because there but for the grace of God or something, but I am doing that because uh, it could be otherwise. It's like this, but it could be otherwise. And just like me, everybody really is clinging on to this life. Um, Anyway, we'll talk about that more because uh, as, as uh, mindfulness is becoming more part of the common parlance, everybody talks about it. It's, on, it's a whole magazine now. and uh, uh, Not to speak of books about it and trainings about it, but to talk about... I, I, found, that, uh, I found a talk I'd given six months ago where uh, I was quoting somebody. This is not what I was quoting. There's a Kia in the parking lot with its lights on. Da da da. <laughs> okay. It could be, I think it probably is, Bob, because nobody else is getting up. I'll tell you one thing that before we start to sit, I'll tell you one story from New York. Because uh, one of the things that I've been impressed with recently is uh, the teachings about 
how good it is for the mood to hear stories of kindness, either to have somebody say, this good thing happened to me, people were kind, or I did a kindness, uh, that somehow, maybe it's because the world seems quite not kind at this point, that it seems to me that I, maybe it's always been equally rough and I just haven't seen all the rough parts. But really, I think that there's a, a difference probably largely because of the media, because we all know what's happening everywhere so much. On the way over, I heard that some there'd been an act of terror in the, outside the parliament building in, in, in London this morning, and that the parliament is locked in. The parliament is on lockdown, and it seems like such a strange thing to say the parliament is on lockdown, they can't go out. So it's nice when you hear that people are kind, and especially I was thinking about us here, and I think, I think that uh, reflecting back, I think that this spring I've been talking a lot about uh, one of the things that I've been teaching f for so long, more or less, that when the mind is clear, the heart is open. That That's how human beings are strung, that fundamentally we're compassionate people. Fundamentally, that's how, what makes us happy. And I've believed that for years. And it got a little shaky this year because there's so much going on in the world where people doesn't look like being kind and good and is making people happy. People are pretty happy doing terrible things to other people and they appear to feel glorious about it. And uh, I talked to Tony about it. By the way, Tony, who was here last week, We'll be back in April, because he said, I'll come with you, and we'll talk about it together. So on, the April, on April 12th, he and I will both teach. We'll have a discussion, because I, I talked to him about it the other day, and I said, so what do you think? Is it true that most people, that people are fundamentally kind if they're not confused? Or is it the other way? Are they fundamentally... Uh, uh, greedy and hateful and confused and we have to have a lot of laws and oversight and watch people what do you think? he said, I think we don't know that's what he said so it could be A, could be B could be A and B it could be that there's no such thing as uh, this percentage are and this percentage aren't could be that some people are kind and other people are not kind and it could be the kind of thing that you know that you can't make a you can't make a rule about maybe we like to think that so anyway I want to tell you a story because I think that's why when we hear a story about niceness we think oh yeah that's a good story we like that story so I was in New York for that blizzard and the day after the blizzard it was in and out pretty fast uh, but the streets were pretty slushed up because there was a lot of snow. It was immediately warmed up, and the streets were slushy and mushy and icy and slippery. And I was meeting a friend at the Frick Museum, which is across on the east side of Manhattan, and I was on the west side. And I got in a taxi because that's the best way to get across. And I got across, but it took a long time. And then the streets were blocked, and... I said, you know, I can get out of here. I'm near enough to the Frick Museum. I can get out of here. I can walk faster at this point, and I'm late for my friends. So pay my bill, and I get out. I've got to walk straight down Fifth Avenue, where in front of all these apartment buildings, they've plowed a path. 
10 blocks. It was very cold, really the kind of cold which I've forgotten since I grew up in New York. I've forgotten that there's cold, and there's also cold that's blowing in your face like a blast wind. So uh, anyway, I remembered at that point what I'd forgotten, but I'm walking along, and it's pretty safe in the street. And then I come to the end of the street, and you have to step off the curb, and there's piles of mush and slush. And I'm examining it. I was telling uh, Laura this morning that my old dog no longer leaps up on the sofa as he did for the past 16 years. He comes and he stands in front of the sofa and he looks at it. And he's, he can see that he's measuring whether or not he's going to make it if he does that leap. Uh, I have tremendous empathy for him. Because <laughs> I come to the end of a street and I'm trying to see, can I be sure that when I put my foot here it doesn't go through this crack of ice on the top or I don't slush myself or I don't fall over? And I, I was standing and looking, and I'd look up, and there's all these construction people working on the streets, cleaning the streets. And I'd look around, and uh, somebody, some man, because they're all men on the construction team, so they were on Saturday, last week anyway, and someone catches my eye, and they see the situation, and they, sit, and they hear say, wait, and they come over and get me. And I said, would you help me over the street. Or they say to me, I'll help you over the street. And I remember it's like little kids that are crossing before they had crossing guards. They'd say to adults, will you cross me over the street? And uh, here are these people, they would come every block, I'd stop, and somebody would rush over and help me through the snow and up on the other side. And I thought, see, people are good. I don't even have to say anything. I just stand there and look around, and somebody comes rushing over. That's... Does that make sense to you? Does that seem like a good story? So did that pick up your heart, that story? So why do we say about certain stories that they're heartwarming? It's not that big of a deal, you know? Uh, but the, I think, because we want to know that people are like that. want to know that these animals that we share the planet with and move around with are really looking out for us in some way. I know why, why I told you this, and I didn't know it when I started. What I wanted to do for the first thing after we sit is go back to talk about that chart with all the paramitas that I gave out the last time that I was here. And that I wanted to talk about the fact that fundamentally we like the, we resonate to the idea that what this is about is recognizing the good in people and recognizing the good in ourselves and enhancing it the more to be able to connect with other beings, the more to be less frightened. You know, by the time I'd gone two streets, I was uncomfortable and I was cold, but I wasn't frightened anymore because I knew somebody was going to walk me over all the street corners and get me down to the museum. So there's a way of saying the world is full of people. It's a much better thing to tell you than that it was a terrorist attack outside of the House of Parliament. But there was that also. There was that also to be able to say that and that. But I choose in the end to be among the people who are crossing old women over the street or holding the door for them or doing this or doing that. It's a way of keeping yourself company in the world, that I'm not alone. So everybody here is doing the same as me, going through this trajectory of getting born and then dying. So we can sit a little bit.
some people haven't been here before, so I want to tell you that the most normal, uh, traditional way to start a mindfulness sit is to say, just sit, relax, make your body comfortable. Allow your body to relax. If you want to, close your eyes. I think this particular room, for whatever reason, maybe it's size, maybe the materials, seems to me quieter than the old hall. I don't, I don't know if that's objectively true, but it seems that way. Maybe the old building creaked. But there's something about listening to quietness. <laughs> Including the turkeys. This is the most turkey period of the year, March. They are uh, in the business of creating new turkeys and they and they fight about it, so that's what's going on. If your body is still and your mind is relaxed, it's quite normal and usual to have the attention be resting on the breath as it comes in and out because it's the only thing that's happening in the moment. So the awareness often settles on it just because it's there. So it's really not a question of bringing your attention to the breath, but breath happening attracts attention. When we sit here for this next half hour or so, I think what you'll discover is that when very little else is happening, that the breath and awareness just hover together. Don't so much have to look for the breath as be the breath or experience the breath or know it. And then from time to time in the background of your mind, there's hearing of turkeys, hearing of other sounds. thoughts about later in the day. Thoughts about different body experiences as you sit. I've been very influenced this last year 
by uh, by a particular contemporary teacher who teaches outside of St. Louis, who says that um, he's not a man I've I've met ever, but I've been reading his work. He says his principal instruction to himself is relax. You have a thought and it startles you, just relax. You hear a sound, just relax. Don't have a problem with things. In some ways, that's an echo of my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, saying that his favorite mantra to himself is, this is okay. That's the mantra. Whatever it is, this thought, this feeling, this is okay. Later on, I want to talk some about whether we're practicing so that our being, practicing sitting in this way is meant to lead to something in the way of knowledge or is really sufficient unto itself as a conducive of knowledge without looking for insight or sufficient unto itself because it's not creating suffering. So we'll sit for a while.
as we come nearer to the end of sitting, um, I imagine that you find that you're thinking about, as I am thinking about, the people who are uppermost in my mind these days because these are special days for them, sometimes because there's special challenges, sometimes because there's special successes. I'm thinking a lot about um, my friend Rachel, who has recently had brain surgery and uh, been discovered to have uh, um, an aggressive form of uh, tumor for which she is now having chemotherapy and radiation. So I think about her a lot. And uh, I'm discovering how much uh, thinking about uh, what's fundamentally crucial in life uh, really is a uh, prioritizer of the mind. So I'm thinking about her a lot, as I am for all the other people that I know who are having difficulty in these days. Who are you thinking about these days?
I'm thinking that as we mention all the people that we mention, and uh, and to it all the people that we think about, but don't quite mention out loud, that um, just as I always feel uplifted when I hear stories of kindness, I have the same feeling, and I'm pretty sure that we share it in some way, all of us, that hearing about other people and who they have loved and cared about, or still love and care about, who are dealing with difficulties, that at the same time that the heart goes out with compassion, it's also steadied by the feeling that love is so strong in this world and people care so much about each other. And that the fact of other people's connections make our own connections all the more dear. And that somehow it's healing for me, and I hope for all of us, that we share our hearts together in the common wish that everyone be consoled and reassured and made to feel safe. I thought maybe it would be um, a good place to start to talk would be uh, the question that I found myself asking just before we started the meditation about whether this practice of sitting and just resting the mind in this moment, uh, whether that's on behalf of something that will come as a result of that, or whether it's on behalf of itself, that uh, I think it's a. I think I've I've heard that question in different uh, religious contexts, and uh, and that just occurred to me again this morning the idea that we practice to get somewhere, or we practice because we practice, and that that every moment of practice is there that the very nature of this practice, I guess it's different if you practice the violin or if you practice the piano or you practice the lines of the play. You really are practicing so that you'll get to do them really well. If practicing in this sense means resting in this moment without needing to change it in any way, not feeling any imperative to chase after every thought, or to make everything all right, or to plan out our future, uh, just just for its own benefit, for its own sake. Uh, not practice. I, 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 I've long been clear that I'm not doing this to be a good meditator. 
I really am doing it so that I'll be less confused less of the time and more liberated from habits of suffering more of the time. But in the meantime, in every moment that I'm not caught in a habit of suffering, I'm free in that moment. So there's a way of, of understanding. Maybe this is banal to say, maybe you all know this. There's a way of saying, I'm practicing this so I'll be free of my habits of suffering. And it, but each moment of mindfulness is free of a habit of suffering. So I'm already there. This moment is free. It's like uh, the two the two remarks that come to mind is a, a teacher I once met at a retreat thirty years ago, at least, uh, maybe more, just after I'd maybe thirty five, uh, whose name was. Um, Sivali. He was a uh, Sri Lankan monk and he was a guest at a... Uh, Sivali was a Sri Lankan monk. A, uh, no, he would have been Burmese, I suppose, if his name was... Anyway, whatever he was, he was a guest at a retreat that I was uh, a practitioner at. And in a conversation we had about mindfulness practice, he said, every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. And I've told that, probably, how many people here have heard me tell that before? Only Heidi. <laughs> so I could say it a few more times, but it's a very good line, isn't it? Because I had this idea at the time that here's my mind, it's like a blackboard. If you went to school with blackboards, as I did, with chalk and erasers, and you erase the blackboard, and then it wasn't there anymore. And I had this picture of a blackboard full of scribble and that I was, with every moment of mindfulness, erasing a moment of scribble. And then my mind would be clear if that were my mind. And then it occurred to me also that all the time that I'm erasing scribble, I'm probably scribbling with the other hand, you know, that uh, <clears throat> while doing some of my... Uh, unrecognized habits, unconscious habits. So I had to be erasing faster than I was scribbling. But I, this morning, actually, while I was sitting, uh, there was a moment that's not particularly amazing, but you probably can relate to it. I was sitting and feeling quite relaxed. It's quiet in here. Isn't it quieter in here than it used to be across the street? Maybe it's more spacious, I don't know. It's and there's no construction going on, you're right. It's been, Nancy's right, we've been having construction for a million years over there. So it's very quiet, and I was really very relaxed about it. And I had the thought, you know, why don't you look at the notes a little bit? You brought so many notes, at least figure out what you're going to start with. I thought, nah, you know, my mind was really very relaxed. And I was enjoying that, just pleasant. You, you don't need to do anything. It's not a problem. It's a moment without a problem. It's a free moment. And then I had a thought about somebody in my family with a somewhat complicated relationship. They and I and they and I, and I'm thinking, you know, a little buzz in the mind. Anybody had such a little thought while you, <laughs> while you were sitting? And, then, and, and, and just doesn't always happen quite so automatically. But I, I heard my mind start to say about this particular person, 
may you be free of danger, may you have mental happiness, may you have physical happiness, may, I, may you have ease of well-being, because those are the particular meta-resolves that I learned 30 years ago. And poof, the whole story about he said, I said, he said, I said, it just disappeared, it didn't get solved, I didn't have to do anything more, I'll have to think about my relationship with this person later on. But at the time, it comes up in the mind, and it's like issue number 37 on my list of issues. And it comes up in the mind, and starts to go brrrr, And all you have to do is bless the moment. It's actually blessing the moment. Because you think, well, it wasn't blessing the moment, it was blessing this person. But I could also think of it as blessing myself at the same time, because I was blessing myself with a moment of peace, because I dropped that conversation. I've been thinking about maybe the whole of practice is just moment to moment noticing what has stirred up the mind and just noticing it, seeing it clearly and paying attention to it, which is also the same of blessing it, not struggling with it. Say, okay, may you be free, may I be free, may we all be free. It's a spaciousness of mind. It's giving away a moment of stuff to chew on for a moment of peace. Does that make sense to you? Does that sound weird? Because it's, it's really counterintuitive. You don't have to figure things out. Just put them down. I was thinking yesterday about a story, you know, a saying, a, a, an example from the Buddha that I heard really as one of my first teachings that if you are cleaning a, 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 a fireplace and you pick up a hot coal that you don't realize is still hot, the, the moment you pick it up, you drop it because it's hot. But here we pick up something in the mind and we fall on it. I may have done that because I have today's newspaper over here. And I looked at the... I'm not even going to look now. But I looked before and uh, I see that it says something about which my mind could say, aha, I knew it, that they were going to da 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 And I don't know it, but I really, it's, aha, I am afraid of this very thing that is coming to pass. Not, I knew it, but anyway. I think you could chew it this up, or you could just leave it alone. It's not that it's not important. It really, I, I did bring this from the newspaper earlier this week. I wonder if I want to read it, because it's... it's here's a quiz. This is Nicholas Kristof, who I very much admire. Here's a quiz. What's the most important crisis in the world today? And it gets three choices. A, President Trump's false tweets that President Barack Obama wiretapped him. B, President Trump's war on the news media. Or C, looming famine that threatens 20 million people in four countries. And he says, kind of answers itself, doesn't it? Because then you stop, you say, wait a minute. Yes, I could say, what they're doing. But 20 million people not are on the verge of starving, are starving in Yemen, South Yemen, Yemen, South Sudan, Somalia, and Nigeria. Millions of children are tumbling toward famine just as America abdicates leadership and cuts assistance. 
This is the worst possible time to make cuts, David Millibrand, president of the International Rescue Committee, told me. He said, quote, the great danger is a domino effect that the U.S. action encourages other countries to back away as well, to cut aid to the needy, whether at home or abroad, to use savings to build up the military, to construct a wall on the border with Mexico. That's the wall that... Never mind, we will just we'll go on with this. The catastrophe in Yemen should be an international scandal, but we're not paying it any attention. And I think, you know, sometimes you think, I think a lot about what's important, really. Uh, I did visit my, 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 I went back east in order to visit a friend of mine who took ill. I don't know if Tony said that last week. Did he say, did say? I went, I went the week before quite suddenly because a friend of mine had uh, brain surgery quite suddenly and uh, was diagnosed to have quite a really aggressive brain tumor. And I felt it was important to go and visit. So I left uh, the day after we met two weeks ago and I had a ticket to come home six days later. And I was going to kind of slip out between Wednesdays and go and come. But then I got snowed in. So while I was there, in addition to hearing the news and uh, reading the newspaper and visiting my friend and talking with our joint friends, you realize that life is going on on millions of, uh, not millions, but so many levels. It's going on in, in South Sudan and Yemen and Somalia. It's got where children that we don't know personally, but could be our children, they're somebody's children, they're there. Uh, where people are dying all over the world of famines or droughts or wars. And here we are. So we think about that. But in the meantime, if our really close friend is suddenly sick or suddenly dying, we really feel about that. I've been thinking about it. I've been using it kind of as a... uh, a meditation aid, like uh, if my mind gets suddenly trapped in in some tension, I, I stop and I think about, I realize what's the tension here. And it's not like my friend's illness is, you know, compared to the famine, compared to the world, is not important. It is very important to me. But a nonsense thought of how something has annoyed me is not important. So really, it's a screener of what's really not important. I think about all the things that we get annoyed about. If I, I, I'm thinking of the most mundane because I've been watching my mind and seeing how frequently I do this new practice called saying to myself, this is not important. I was coming down south on the highway yesterday and went to turn off on to Sir Francis Drake to get home. And it was coming on rush hour. And all of a sudden, that intersection, that for 50 years has been quite a flowing intersection, it's not. It's tremendously crowded. I turn on to Sir Francis Drake. It's got all too many lanes, and it's complicated to drive there. And my mind starts saying, I wonder it's because they didn't plan the bridge right, or too many people moved. I said, wait a minute. 
this is not important. It's what it is now. It's crowded on Sir Francis Drake, period. That's what it is. That's all. Uh, it still is important who lives. Maybe that's all that's important. Who lives and who doesn't. Who's, who suffers and who doesn't. Who we can take care of that we don't take care of. Otherwise, it's just what's going on. Maybe the whole of practice is to keep the mind discriminating so it doesn't get tangled up in stuff that really uh, is a, uh, an unnecessary tangle up. Just because we're used to it. I guess that's why I was thinking of Usivali and saying, uh, uh, you're erasing. Every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. So I'm conditioned at this point by my background, by my politics, by my life, to look at that headline and not only think, oh dear, but to think, Rrr, I knew it, look at this, what he's doing. You know, that, that's extra. That's an old conditioning. It does not help me to do things better. And so back to the question of whether we're sitting in order to come to understand some deep insights or whether we're sitting just to let the mind recuperate itself from the last traumatic moment. I, I actually think that quite the answer is both and, that we're not doing one or the other, we're doing both and. Uh, but really, may I be free of enmity. May my mind not fight with stuff. That doesn't mean my, my mind not... not uh, not respond or not resist or not speak up or not take action. Just not get mad at it. Well, the mad at it is, shouldn't be happening. And the, the, I think the flaw in that thinking of it is happening. The, the idea shouldn't be. Indignation. I decided uh, I'm being pretty good. You know, I'm, I feel like this is a confessional. I keep telling you I'm taking a vow on cable TV. So I'm not entirely abstinent yet, but pretty good, pretty good. And I realize that what, what's about it that's distressing is that it has a tone of indignation in it. Can you believe what these people are doing? Da, 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 da. Which kind of, it's extra. I'd like to tell you what's going on and then you can think about it. But maybe it's, maybe it's really, it's not... It's not to realize that we're all connected or realize that everything that arises passes away or realize at some later date that, uh, that um, struggle is always suffering, that imperative in the mind is, is what we interpret as suffering. Those are the three things that we hope to realize. But you could realize it as if it's an intellectual enterprise and then, okay, so you know. But in the meanwhile, every moment that there isn't greed, hatred, and delusion in the world, it doesn't matter if you know the, the reasons, it matters that the mind rests and it's not caught up in one of its, un, one of its unskillful attitudes of greed and hatred and delusion. It's hard. I'll tell you another New York story while I was there, because it was. Um, I think to myself, I think this is an important story. One of the things that I'd like to do when I go to New York City is I go to the Frick Museum. 
Anybody ever go to the Frick Museum? It's a beautiful museum, isn't it? It's the mansion of Henry Clay Frick, who died in 1919. And uh, he only built the house five or ten years before. But he furnished it as in a very lavish way, and all the furniture is... Most of the furniture still there. It still looks like a house. It doesn't look like a museum. It looks like a house. And it's as if he went around and said, well, I need to put some pictures on the walls. Like we move into a new apartment. We put up a few things on the wall. So he has a Monet and a Manet and two Vermeers and three Rembrandts. And uh, really, it's as if he went around shopping. And he said, I'll have one of those, one of those, one of those. And, uh, and in fact, a few of them are my favorite things. I go always back to the rooms where they are to be able to see and show whoever I'm with, look, look, this is my favorite thing. And so I was enjoying all of that. And I, that, this was the time I was walking down Fifth Avenue and had to get rescued by the construction workers. But I got there, and I went in, I met my friend, we looked at all the stuff. She said, I can't believe I've lived in New York all my life, and I've never been to this museum. I can see why you come all the time, it's a great museum, all of that. And then they said, oh look, they have a little movie theater here in the museum. We can go in and see a movie about how come this museum came to pass. So we go in and see the movie, and I find out how Henry Clay Frick made all his money. And it's terrible. So, and as I'm watching, I'm wishing, oh, I wish I didn't know this. I wish that I didn't know that he was uh, a partner of Andrew Carnegie in the steel business and made a great deal of money in that and was most notably involved in breaking up a tremendous strike of union workers against bad situations where he did terrible things and he called in the National Guard or he got mercenaries to break up a strike and people died and it was a terrible thing. And then he broke up his relationship with Andrew Carnegie but he had lots of money and uh, among the other things he did was build a tremendous estate in a certain planned community where several other extremely rich people built wonderful, tremendous estates, and either built or did not repair a dam that was um, right next to that community, uh, and knowingly did not repair the dam that needed to be repaired. And uh, the dam broke through. This is especially what's going on. I'm, I'm there two weeks after Oroville. Uh, the dam broke, and more than 2,000 people drowned. And they just moved all of these people up and moved and left and didn't do any compensation, nothing. And went to New York and bought real estate and built beautiful houses and filled them up with one of these and one of that. I thought, ah, so here I am. And all of a sudden, I don't feel so good about this museum. And I don't feel like telling people I come here every time. I think, 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 Sylvia, so you can come back here. Because it's got beautiful art there. It didn't make the art any worse. He got worse, but the art is not worse. It's the same beautiful art. But I watch how my mind has trouble compartmentalizing and saying, oh, this is, these are all ill-gotten goods. That's what they are. So you tell me the answer to that. What do you do? Do you like it less, the frick, now that I told you about it? 
I wonder how much of what we enjoy is not ill-gotten goods. You know, how many people have gone to San Simeon? I took my mother-in-law years ago to San Simeon because I thought she'd like it. And she did like it. And I really didn't want to go because I really didn't like the politics of Mr. Hurst and, uh, and anyway, and all of that. And I went, and it's a monumental museum. It's really amazing to see. And I, and I but didn't want to start to burden my mother-in-law, who wouldn't maybe have understood it anyway with what my reservations were. We just went, and she had a good time. So at the time, I was thinking to myself, I am liking this sort of against my will, because I didn't want to like it, because I don't like the history of the Hearst newspaper points of view. So what do you think about that? What do you think? Paula, what do you think? Probably makes no difference in school, so maybe you should go. <laughs> Nobody'll <laughs> maybe um, maybe nobody knows you wrote the letter. <laughs> so this is what we talk about, a principled stance, you know, okay. Um, it's an interesting subject because last week um, I have a friend and I went to the Civic Center. We decided to walk to the MoMA because they have the Matisse exhibit. And we walked through the Tenderloin. And of course, you know, I haven't... I'd been there, but I realized that I haven't really gone like from the Civic Center on these roads. And, you know, I'm even a nurse. I'm used to hospitals. But it was people of all races there. Mm -hmm. And the smell of urine and, you know, fecal material on the street. And it's like I could have driven into and gone to the MoMA and I would have missed that whole experience and it, at times I felt uneasy and it wasn't just seeing something on TV, it was smelling it, it was in the middle of it which mm -hmm. really you know at the end of the day really impacted me so mm -hmm. and then you go to the MoMA and you're seeing these beautiful paintings and you know everyone's all dressed up and it, I thought of it at the end of the day like you did and it just it was just very um heart-wrenching because it's mm -hmm. not even in the Sudan, it's here right. in San Francisco. Yeah. So did it go through your mind, or did it go through your mind, I forgot your name. Pardon? I forgot your name. For Maureen. Maureen. Did it go through your mind while Maureen was talking about how much money, or little comparatively, like how many, uh, I don't want to to personalize it to this president, but how much, uh, how little spending 
could really make a big difference, cleaning up, bringing more medical services, having a, a, a first aid station on every corner, having toilets in a public place so that people could actually use the toilets if they're currently homeless. How little compared to an increased defense budget. And the security in the MoMA, and I've been to the De Young, is like the best security in the world. And I'm walking the streets, and one person had a cushion with, um, you know, screw, screwdrivers there, probably for a weapon to protect himself. Yeah. And so, you know, talking about security, it was like all these comparisons and money, like you're saying. So let's have as, as the as the underlying story. What's the dharma of this? We're not going to stop going to the MoMA, not going to stop having the thoughts. What? Are, well, you 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 can, What what am I am learning as we're all talking? There you go. It's almost the uh, same issue of of that you're spiritual, other people aren't. I mean, the fact that art exists and it's beautiful transcends this issue of money. If you keep looking at it in relationship to money, you don't see the art. Okay, now what's your name? Dan. Dan, thank you. Thinking, thinking, Juanita is here. Um, well, I've been to Burma a couple times, and the last time I was there, which was a few years ago, I was in a museum, and of course Burma is known for its rubies and its gold. It has great, great riches. Um, and there was um, this beautiful um, art object, but it had no protection around it. And I thought, boy, someone could just steal this so easily. And then I started thinking about, well, yes, in fact, so many of their riches have been taken out of their country, and how do they deal with that? And um, I think, at least what I've been told, that they believe, many of the people in Burma believe, that that's on the person who steals it. So that's a kind of bad energy or karma on that person that steals it. And then I thought, well, where are all those beautiful objects? And then I thought, well, they're in museums in you know, Europe or the United States, so they haven't really disappeared. They've just been moved somewhere else. So, okay, I'm, I, am, I want to hear everybody else's stuff, then we'll talk. But it's mystifying, isn't it? What to do? How will, you, how will my mind hold all of this, and how will I remember to get up tomorrow morning and make cereal and have breakfast? You know, that uh, it's bewildering. There you go, right there. My comment goes back to when you were talking about San Simeon, and I was thinking about uh, Jack's talk Monday night here, and he was talking about renunciation, and you quickly made a comment about the frick. Um, separating ourselves from things versus people you, you know, all that stuff at San Simeon is just stuff. They're just things. They're not the person who ill got them. So if you can separate that, maybe that is helpful. It's what we, it, the meaning we ascribe to a thing doesn't necessarily have to be ascribed to that thing. Mm -hmm. It's really our feelings about the person behind the acquisition of that thing. 
mm-hmm. where we have the problem. And so if we can use that same philosophy of renunciation, of attachment to things, maybe that concept could be applied in these instances. Uh, I'm very glad that you bring it there. I want to hear everybody else's comments, but I want to say, hold on, hold on, I'm going to come back. And in fact, you are bringing us around to where I was going to begin and where we'll probably end with talking about uh, when people say that generosity is the heart of what the Buddha taught. And Buddha wasn't talking about bringing up fun drives, you know. I think he was talking about the generosity of the not clinging mind. You, uh, or, or, po, uh, or Pope um, Francis, who said, someone asks you for something, it's very easy, give it to them. That, that it's not so easy for everybody to do that. But to have a mind, it, it, and, and not everybody has the same means to give in the same amount for everything, but it's not about the means, and it's not about giving, it's about not feeling needy. That's about, that's, that's I think the way that non, that non-greed manifests. It doesn't manifest as giving stuff away, it means not feeling needy. That when someone says, uh, you know, a person asks on the street, could I have this? We start to think, well, is that reasonable? Uh, but if we, if we didn't feel needy, someone once told me a story. I want to make sure that everybody talks here. Oh, we have time, good. Someone once told me, maybe it was Sharon or somebody, one of my friends, a Dharma teacher, told me a story of coming back from studying and practicing and being in Asia. And she said she was just about to come back and she was going to fly back to the Bay Area. And uh, someone gave her a, uh, an envelope full of bills, which she assumed was pretty, pretty substantial envelope. And she thought it's dollar bills. And the person said, I'd like when you get back to hand these out to people, in the, homeless people in the street. And uh, let's even suppose, I don't know who it was exactly, but... I know it was some, uh, one of my Dharma teacher friends. I also know that uh, in certain communities of Jews, they have the um, tradition of if someone is going on a trip, you give them some money to give to a person who needs money in the place that they're going. And it's kind of like a good luck charm. Or if I give you money to give to a homeless person in Jerusalem, that means you'll get to Jerusalem so that the good spirit is going to carry you there. Anyway, someone gave Sharon this package, and she arrived um, in Berkeley and walking in the streets, and then there was an area where there were homeless people. She decided, okay, I'll give out these dollar bills now, and she opened the envelope, and they were all $20 bills. She thought, whoa, $20 bills. So she started to give them to whomever came up. And pretty soon it's like a Pied Piper. A lot of people were spreading the word. That person over there is giving $20 bills. But she said, you know, it was really easy to do because they weren't mine. So there's so many ways to think about that when you think about stuff that you have. How much is actually ours? You know, even if it's sitting in our bank account now. Is it ours, or is it temporarily there on its way to someplace else? Or is it, doesn't matter whether it's temporarily on its way, or it can't be other than temporarily. Everything is temporarily. You do know that. 
No, well, no, yes, I will tell you. I had a friend, I haven't mentioned her in a long time, who had a very old aunt who died in a nursing home and had lost the capacity to talk. And she forgot words. She just couldn't say anything anymore. She was old, she had dementia. But she knew that when people came to visit her, she should sit up in the chair and smile at them and look at them. And every once in a while, that it was good to say something. But she only remembered two words. And the two words that she remembered that she said were unexpectedly and temporarily. And if you think about that, that's the whole of the Dharma. Everything is temporarily and unexpectedly. You know, if it's not unexpectedly, you wouldn't notice it. You'd say, whoa, look what happened. It's like my friend having this illness. A month ago, she was teaching mindfulness in Costa Rica. Now she's going daily for radiation treatments and temper unexpectedly, you don't know. And really, really, if we didn't know. When I was starting to study Dharma when I was young, I've said so many times, they talked about this as preparing you for old age, sickness and death. But number one, I would always think to myself, a lot of people die before it's old age, they get sick before, but anyway, leaving that aside, but even if we said well, this is preparing you for death, it seemed like a long time away. But it's not a long time away, because suddenly you, get a, go to, you wake up, go to sleep, wake up, go to sleep, wake up, go to sleep, and you're old, and you move through. Six years ago, your friend asked you, six years passed, you know, that... Uh, from what vantage point you are in your life. It's all passing, and how much of it is ours? And that business of not needing, not only not needing stuff, but not needing it to be otherwise, whatever it is, that definition, this is what's happening now, let's see what happens next. It's like, it has been so liberating to me when I'm starting to get upset about something or other. Uh-oh, look at the president. Look, he's doing this, he's doing that, see what? And I think to myself, well, this is what's happening next. This is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. We don't know. Nobody knew that this was going to happen. Well, people worried, but who knew it was going to be like this? Somebody else was going to say something. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Well, I think, you know, the fact that you made this discovery that it turns out that it's a blessing because we're talking about it. And, you know, it's a reminder, I mean, even related to what's going on today, the things that we as human beings, that the things that we do that are terrible to each other, and we've been doing them throughout history. Yeah. But I think beginning to have the conversation about what we're doing, what we have done, is positive so that we do better. Because you think even back to um, you know, the suffragettes and how did the women's movement come about? The women's movement did not come about because there were women going, we want our freedom and we're going to do these things and we're going to start speaking up. It happened because Lucretia Mott and other people wanted to address what was happening with slavery and they yeah. knew they had to speak up about it and in the process of doing that they brought about their own freedom yeah. and so just those reminders that this is what we do and what are those lessons so that we don't do those things and how can we 
speak up when we believe in something, let people know what we think, keep the conversation going, and I think without blame, because it's a collective, Mm -hmm. this is our family, this is our human family, and we can take much better care of ourselves than we have been doing, and we need to, and those reminders of the horrors Mm -hmm. are help us to wake up and stay on point about our Mm -hmm. own actions, I think. Remind me of your name. Shalene. Shalene, thank you. Absolutely. You know, the other thing that I want to tell, because I know two more people at least have something to say, is when I was in New York I, on the women's movement, I went to a, see an opera called, the, it's a one-act opera called The Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. So how many people know about The Triangle Shirtwaist Fire? Triangle Shirtwaist Company was a, a women's blouse company uh, a company that made women's wear, notably blouses, which were called shirtwaists, on the third or the fourth floor of a particular building in Manhattan, um, where the two men who owned the factory took up the habit of locking the women in the factor- on the factory floor, saying they went to the toilet too much, they were going in and out too much, and... They, so, and they had to stay at their machines and so, I mean, so grotesque and um, it was interesting in the, in the uh, well, maybe, maybe I'll just tell you about the opera and then we'll go on it was the beginning of the labor unions for one thing the, uh, the, uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire was just before, I think it was 1915, just before the first women's march was in response to the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire and the really uh, the beginning of the uh, International Ladies, Ladies Garment Workers um, Union. See, I grew up in New York, not even that all later than that. I went to school in the 1940s. It was still in people's memory when it happened because something caught fire and the women couldn't get out and they died. They, and there are, there, there are photos of people, this is not drawings, photos of people leaping out the window. And not all of them died because some of them got out through some hallway through the smoke and they'd said about what happened there. It was a terrible, terrible thing not this, I have actually, I, I won't read you the whole thing, but I, I have a, a summary of it. Not only be, that, that it happened, that's grotesque and terrible, but the, um, the, the, the two men who owned the, the, the factory had been cautioned to buy smoke detectors beforehand. I think that was Ziddy, the smoke detectors. And they said, no, insurance is cheaper. We'll just get the insurance. And they got insurance. They got $400 per person who died from the insurance company because they were found to be negligent but not guilty of a crime. And they paid each family of a person who died $75. So they came out more than $300 a head on each person who died. Those two men... Obviously, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factor company was out of business. Uh, soon thereafter, uh, opened another factory a little bit uh, upstate in New York and locked the doors again. 
It's, a, it's an incredible story. You can't believe it. You can't believe it. You can't even say anything about it was against this or that. The, the two men who were the entrepreneurs in that factory were Jews. So it wasn't about the fact that most of the workers in there were Jews and that it was, they weren't taking care of the Jews. They weren't taking care of anybody. And, the, and not all of the workers were. It was very interesting. When I was going to school, they would say the only people in New York are Jews and Italians. I thought that's so funny to say that because Jews... Jews is not a, na- a nation of you know, a nationality, and Italian is not a religion. So it's like apples and oranges a little bit. But the Italians that I knew that lived, you know, on the in right on my back street that I went to school with were uh, the children of newly emigrated Sicilian Catholics. So my best friend. Uh, I admired her very much when she went to uh, church on Sunday with her parents. They were in and out in 40 minutes. And I went on Saturday with my grandmother and it was a four-hour affair. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I went with Rosemary and I sat in the back while all this was going. I thought, this is great, in and out, you know. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it, was, it was all right. It was fine. But it wasn't all right that, that, uh, that people worked in the garment industry under such terrible circumstances. And, and the greed, you know, when, when they, they were talking about the opera before and after, they had a panel about it, that, that, that the worst line, wasn't the worst line of that whole story that I just told you, they opened another factory and they locked the door. Can you imagine what kind of greed? And then we say, oh, look at the, the billionaires in the current cabinet. But... Why do people feel so needy, you know? Uh, we all have stuff. We all live in Marin County. Everybody came here one way or another. None of us is impoverished, um, I don't think. But we're actually living probably very, most of us, compared to the world, comfortably. But so much money. And how can greed be boundless? But it is. And how can the mind make space for it? So I don't know. But go ahead, what were you going to say? All I was going to say is you listen to news and you hear these things and it just becomes so, so overwhelming of, can I save this person? Can I save those people in Suzanne? Can I save those people in Tenderland? And it just gets mind-boggling. And when you think it through, like with the Frick Museum, I mean, it's almost like you got to rest your mind and not think it through, but just enjoy what the beauty is. Or, you know, like, if there's a story... I mean, the women's movement came out of that, too. So maybe, you know, look at the happy ending, too, of some of the stuff instead of always the negative. Because it just, I mean, even the news in the morning, I can't listen to it anymore because it ruins my day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know, I heard from one person, it's like, you can only save so many things, and you mm-hmm. got to choose. So I was thinking as you were talking, well, probably other people will want to talk. To, somebody else wanted to say something. There you go. I think it's great if we all say something. 
Um, what I wanted to say is, is, I think maybe a little similar along those lines, is that especially with something like the Frick Museum, you know, you had classified it as a good place to go, and then you you found out where all that artwork came from, and and said it was ill-gotten goods, and then now you're questioning: is it a good place to go, or is it a bad place to go to to support that? But but I don't think everything is always black and white. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and I'm not sure that we have to assign it a label. So maybe we can accept that there was some, um, you know, maybe what we want to call bad in in what came along with getting um, that artwork and having that space. But but over time, there's been a lot of good done by having that available to the public for people mm-hmm. to see and be inspired by and, and all the rest. So I don't think it has to be good or bad. Well, maybe that's actually one of the things that that uh, uh, Tony, that sounds like, you sound a little bit like Tony at that point, you know, that uh, it's not good or bad, Sylvia. He'd say, it's just what is. And it was what was happening then. Say, I think about the women's movement now and uh, the many ways in which it's certainly, we certainly are not at at parity with women and men. Uh, But it's not what it was in 1910. And... uh, However much we wish there were more differences, or we wish we wish that it, it had been really worked out before now, that uh, that it, to ha- to stand back and see the long view, the long view that we are that we are horrified now when we see. I don't, maybe I'm also thinking that we're. Uh, Maybe maybe what what you said was was really it that we're not only horrified but we're really thinking about more that not just acknowledging this happening but thinking about it. One of the things that I'm struck with is in Germany there isn't anybody growing up in Germany who doesn't have a very big part of their curriculum in talking about the Germans did this terrible thing, purposely murdering so many people. Uh, and in, in uh, museums, it doesn't say they killed them, it says they murdered them. So they really seriously, we as a company, as a country, are still having textbooks in, the, in high school that don't tell about what actually went on. So that when, uh, that when suddenly people do discover... Uh, it's like it's new. They haven't known it. It's very to know about it and to talk about it, because people have grandparents who were twelve years a slave, or great grandparents now. But there are no, almost no Holocaust survivors left of people who were in the camps and out. But a few, uh, enough to say it really did happen. It really happened, and and slavery happened, and you know I think really it's about it's about actually allowing ourselves to become broken-hearted enough. I wonder if we don't really uh, move away because we're afraid that we won't be able to do the day. You know, I I sometimes think to myself that. Uh, it's not that I don't want to know the news, but I can't have any more of it for today. It's like you feel like the mind is going to keel over from it. 
so that I think that come around to why are we sitting? Are we sitting just to make ourselves more intimate with the truths of consciousness, of greed, uh, of that greed and hatred and delusion on mental poisons, that uh, 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 impermanence and suffering and interconnectedness are really the fundamental truths of experience? Or are we sitting just to keep ourselves alive and really uh, soothe our minds so that we can look around and see really what's going on? Every once in a while I have the feeling that this planet is a hospital. Actually, like it's, a, it's a, like an intensive care hospital ward. We're all, we just don't have the right clothing. And if we all put on the clothing, the stethoscope tucked in the pocket, we'd know it. But it's like a, it's like a boarding lounge for the next world. And, it's a, and everybody on it is suffering. We all have the sickness called life, which is more or less in perpetual disappointment or anxiety about being disappointed. But somebody said this morning, and it's spring, and the same magnolias are coming out wherever. Although my friend in Washington, D.C. told me that the cherry blossoms came out too early because it was too warm, and now they're all gone because of the blizzard last week. So everything's confused. But anyway, the cherry blossoms are coming out of cherry trees, not apples or apple blossoms. I mean, there is something beautiful about the fact of creation, not the fact of how human beings are doing on it. Somebody else wanted to say something? There you go. I was just saying, um, we're talking about all these different things. We found out about the Frick Museum because they had a film there that was telling more or less the truth. And just like the movie, Hidden Figures, all this information comes out and we find out the truth and roots and all these different yeah. um, true stories and information that comes out and we go, oh, we didn't hear about that in our history books. But it's having the effect of us looking at ourselves and seeing mm -hmm. what it is we have done and owning that and then mm -hmm. going on. And I think that that makes you a more honest, compassionate mm -hmm. person. And so we just look at the fact that the art in the Frick Museum is still one of my favorite places mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And the art has nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. And they have the film showing that he wasn't such a great guy. So we know that information, but we can still see that art mm -hmm. and know that it stands alone as just a thing of beauty to mm -hmm. share mm -hmm. on earth. And one of the things that you're saying, a matter of fact, is that um, in, the, uh, in the movie about him, it just says it. It doesn't say, can you believe it? He was a terrible abuser of people's workers' rights. They just say, and in that year, he was responsible for breaking up a, f a strike of union workers, and a lot of people died, and da 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 da. It happened. This is what happened. Let's see what happens next. It's like uh, maybe that's the lesson. It really did happen. We really can know it. Say, okay, what do we do now? Maybe we, you know, there were uh, classes of children there going through. Maybe schools take classes of children there. They can see one of each of these great masterpieces. You know, we start with now. For myself, I, I, I find like the most important thing I can do is check out what is the screen through which I am seeing the world. 
This is very the the the, uh, the line that the Buddha says about whatever the world, whatever the mind ponders, whatever it dwells on, by that is it shaped, which which I think really means the flavor of my mind gets um, permeated by the feeling uh, by by a feeling, and if I don't notice it, I then use I'm seeing through that feeling, and I'm not seeing. Uh, as wisely as I could, if I, and maybe that has to do with the at how my, at what point you say you know my mind is getting overwhelmed with the pain of the world. I need to sit for a while now and just let it settle. Not that the pain is going to come all right. It's just that I'll catch up with it, and I'll be able to look at it again and meet it face on. Somebody sent me an email this week. Is somebody? somebody named Eric in Boston, and I wrote to him back, and I said, um, uh, would you mind if I read your email in class? He said, no, no, I'd like it. I said, can I say your name is Eric? He said, absolutely. I listen to you. You know, this is, gets recorded, and people listen. So he's talking about, um, he said, one of, among other things, he said, this is, we have, we've, I've been studying the parami of friendliness, loving kindness. Uh, but I think it could also be insight. So, uh, all right, here we go on. I don't have to comment on it. I was recently practicing at a Brahma Vihara themed weekend retreat, which means a um, metta retreat. Continuously through the day in various forms. I had practiced metta briefly in the past, but never so intensively, so this was a new experience. At the end of the day, we went back home, and I remember being mindful while getting ready for bed when a strong negative emotion came up. I brought mindfulness to it, and to my surprise, something was completely different. It's hard to explain, but I think a lot of my intention to practice has the flavor of in order to, meaning that I will be mindful with the hopes that after I'm mindful for a long enough period of time, love and compassion will arise mysteriously, as if from somewhere else, as the fruit of all my practice. But this time there was love and compassion in the mindfulness itself, and I realized that I had it wrong. Love and compassion were already qualities that were present in me, waiting to be tapped into, but they were often obscured by everything else. This gave me so much faith in the practice and has helped to soften my own mindfulness practice immensely, bringing that quality of friendliness towards myself and my own experience. I was very happy to read that because one of the things that I frequently say, love to say, is that I think that the uh, dichotomy between I'm going to a mindfulness retreat and I'm going to a metta retreat is a false dichotomy. It's not really true. I don't think you can be mindful without having a warm heart. That you really need to meet each moment. Here I am. Here I am. I look at the New York Times and I think, ah, no, don't do that. Take a breath. This is now. Let's see where it's going. This is interesting. Forward. Have a certain amount of curiosity, which is warm-heartedness. It means let's see that, let's look at it, let's not back away. So I don't think you can be mindful without having uh, an amount of friendliness in it. 
And I don't think we can do metta practice without being alert to what are all the dimensions of the metta. Sometimes when people think of metta practice as the mind grinding out phrases. But it's not the mind grinding. I mean, it's the mind actually um, oh, uh, using, uh, dwelling in phrases as a way of... Um, as a way of cultivating a certain amount of concentration in the mind. But it's really dwelling on phrases and at the same time noticing how does my mind respond to this phrase when I dwell on the phrase, may my best beloved be safe. A certain feeling comes up about this. When I dwell on the phrase, may so-and-so, so-and-so of my family that I maybe have having some problem with, and I feel, er, say, wait a minute, that's not really wishing, that's saying a phrase, but it's not connected. How about, may you be well, may you be content, may I be content, may we all be content, may all beings be at ease. That you can't really be doing metta practice. In other words, I think the, the, the era of thinking is that doing metta practice means saying a lot of phrases. And I think doing metta practice means holding the mind resolutely in a warm mood towards whatever it meets, which is the same as what mindfulness is. It's resolutely holding the mind, the attention, the attention is better than the mind, holding the attention in a warm mood as it meets its life. May I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, is a line that I say to myself a lot. And I think that it goes equally for what we call mindfulness practice and metta practice. So I think it's been a false thing to say, now we're going to a metta retreat, now we're going to a mindfulness retreat. Besides, when you go to a retreat, who knows what's actually going on in your mind? You know, there's nobody who knows. Uh, when I first learned the technique of metta practice, I, I phoned my friend Sharon, who had been... Uh, as far as I knew, a mindfulness teacher, and she had gone to Burma and she had studied metta. And I phoned and said, can I come and be there and uh, you'll teach me metta? And she said, okay, it's a mindfulness retreat, but I'll give you private instructions every day. So I went and did that. You sit in a room, nobody knows what you're doing in your mind. It's not like, uh-oh, you're doing the wrong practice. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> And I actually, I, must, I guess I thought I was doing a different practice from them. I was, in fact, concentrating on phrases of goodwill. But fundamentally, what we are trying to do is cultivate the habit of meeting this moment with warmness and friendliness and goodwill and clarity and good intention. That's what we're doing. May I meet this moment, may I meet every moment of arising negativity with enough wisdom to restore my mind to balance so that I can respond with compassion. That's what we're doing here. Somebody, uh, I found as I was looking at the old notes yesterday, and I found um, an old Dharma talk from a few years ago, where uh, a metta retreat from a, a Dharma talk about six months ago, where uh, someone had asked me in an interview that morning, uh, and then I used it for the theme for the talk that night. Someone came in and in all really sincerity 
said, what are we doing here, really? But that's, that's what we're really doing here. We are really trying to cultivate the habit of saying, whoops, catching my balance here so I can meet this next moment with warmth and with kindness. Whoops, I'm restoring myself to warmth and kindness. Maybe it's one long tightrope that we're walking from the beginning to the end because it's so easy to form, to fall into negativity. I think to myself, it's tremendously easy to become annoyed. How many people here got annoyed at something today? Uh, anybody look, you know, get annoyed at the traffic, at the weather, at the rain, at the newspaper, at the news? That, you know, the mind is a half a second away from growling. Really, all the time. And you think, okay, I want a mind that doesn't growl. That's really what it is. Imagine if we put that in the catalog, nobody would come. <laughs> anyway, I won't be here next week. May you all be well. I, I hope that some of you will remember to come to the Lark, or will want to remember to come to the Lark on Sunday, because Barbara will be there playing the drums, and I will be there talking with her about drumming as a spiritual practice. As a mindfulness practice, by the way, because I want to also finish with the idea that there are some things that are spiritual and other things that are not, because I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I, I don't mean to say that in a dismissive way, but uh, there is a kind of a, an ego around who has a spiritual practice and who doesn't. But uh, I want to think of, of us having uh, friendliness practices So, I'm glad you're all here and I wish you well. I'll see you in two or three weeks, whenever that is. Oh, I forgot to tell you. These are a present and you can have one. It's a metasuto, all wrapped up and beautifully, and beautifully typeset and you can put it on your um, uh, refrigerator. It's part of what we used for a um, for the gratitude set a few weeks ago but uh, and it's uh, it's uh, it's really a sum anyway of what I was saying this whole morning about it's all about having goodwill towards everyone you. you're welcome take two if you need to I know you love opera yeah but last night I went to see Hamilton have you seen yeah you know what?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.